Namaskar. Uh, my name is Anil Suri. Uh, uh, we might, of course, start with the, the, the origin of, of uh, Indian agriculture, but uh, I thought that it would be worthwhile to take on some, some dogma that, that have come to dominate the way we describe Indian pre and proto history, especially since uh, in the morning, uh, Dr. Adluri and uh, Dr. Bagchi, they talked about how in one stroke, you know, they have, uh, Western Indologists have delegitimized the, the spiritual and ethical aspect of our texts. And, you know, they have uh, tried to come up with this kind of spurious, neutral, historical deconstruction of the way our uh, our texts were, uh, were written and transmitted. Something similar happens even, even, even parallelly in, in the historical reconstruction, in the sense that they have not delegitimized just the, the Paramarthika part of the text, not just the Purushartha part, they have actually delegitimized the Purushas themselves, which is the Indians. So, so what they do is that they basically try to, to posit migrations into India, as in uh, it's only migrants from a certain region, whichever region they may talk about, they have proposed pretty much every part of the world. So it's migrations from here in the Neolithic bringing agriculture to India and migrations from somewhere else in the Bronze Age bringing Indo-European languages and, and the language ultimately in which the Vedas were written came to India something around 1500 BC, 1300 BC. So I thought that I would actually slightly reframe my talk and talk about the, uh, the way we can try to challenge the dogma that have come to uh, define the way we, we describe Indian history today. And I won't stop with that, I'll, I'll get a little provocative. I will try to bring about the fact that these demic diffusion scenarios, that means when migrations of people bring in aspects of culture such as agriculture or Indo-European languages, can actually be inverted. The evidence is not contrary to that. So that's the brief outline of my talk. Uh, I, I'll outline what exactly these dif dim diffusion scenarios entail. Uh, we'll start with uh, the, the Neolithic migrations that are supposed to have brought agriculture into the subcontinent from the Fertile Crescent, the so-called cradle of civilization, which is a biblical fantasy. And uh, then, of course, I will describe in detail the archaeological evidence that you have for the beginnings of agriculture in the, the, the subcontinent. Uh, yesterday, actually, I think Professor Kapil Kapoor said that if uh, zameen se nahi nikla to to kuch log manenge nahi. So until you find archaeological evidence, some people will not admit it. So what I would like to say is, zameen se bhi bahut kuch nikla hai. The scandal is we are not allowed to know it. It is not mentioned anywhere in the mainstream. It is systematically blanked out. It is systematically airbrushed, tuned out from the discourse neither in the scholarly discourse nor in the textbooks will this be mentioned. It's a very simple tactic. I mean, just like, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Bagchi mentioned in the morning, by the simple rules of saying, oh, you are an ossified traditionalist, so you are unsuitable to, to critique these ancient texts. So in one stroke, they delegitimize the, the, the entire discourse. So here also the same thing, you know, it's, it's even more blatant. What they do is they simply airbrush the evidence out. It's never mentioned anywhere, conspiracy of silence. So you will... So I, I think I may be able to spring a surprise or two on, on you if you haven't uh, read these things already. And then there is, of course, the, the Bronze Age Aryan migrations of the steppe. It started off as an invasion. Then when they could not find evidence of an invasion, they made it a migration. The ultimate fact of the matter is they have come from outside. 
and what this does is that it, it, it dates the beginnings of Indian culture to conveniently late dates. And then I, once again, I will touch upon the archaeological evidence of the subcontinent, which, which uh, disputes these kind of migration scenarios. And the more important question, do we have any evidence that cultures on the steppe were proto-Indo-European, the mother language from which, you know, these all these branches of Indo-European, starting from Bengali in the east to languages in the British Isles in the west, all of them are supposed to have descended. Then I will also comment upon some technical aspects, I mean, the, the kind of mistakes that the geneticists have made, because now the geneticists have sprung into the, into the action and now they claim that, you know, that we have actually found evidence of massive migrations into the subcontinent. So this like sort of sets it in stone because it's a hard science. You can dispute historical linguistics, but you cannot dispute genetics because it now is, is proven by science. So I have to get a little technical. I will try to point out some of the mistakes that the geneticists have made. And uh, then I will also briefly touch upon the evidence by proxy for human migrations. This is because uh, cattle, livestock are very important to humans, especially after the Neolithic started. The, the, whole, the whole process of agriculture is, is very intimately tied up with, with our domestication of animals. So I'll, I'll also briefly cite some, some evidence which shows that the scenario may be the opposite, that is migration out of India to, to both the Fertile Crescent as well as the Steppe. Uh, the Steppe culture is uh, Central Asia, <coughs> Central Asian cultures. So uh, firstly coming to the Neolithic demic diffusion of agriculture, it is dogma. It was stated in the 19th century and it has stuck. It has acquired the status of truth simply by force of repetition. There is actually no backing evidence to make this claim. But unfortunately, you are not now allowed to state otherwise. And the, the, the problem is uh, with, with Bronze Age migrations, it is purely conjectural. It is based upon historical linguistic reconstructions. Once again, there is no backing evidence for these kind of migration scenarios. They just notice certain similarities in the language between Sanskrit and Greek and Latin and then they, they work backwards to construct a hypothetical mother language called Proto-Indo-European from which the various branches were supposed to have, de have descended. But apart from that conjecture, there is actually no backing evidence anywhere to suggest that this kind of a migration took place into India. And then, uh, of course, now the, the problem is that the, the ghost of genetics has, has claimed that that uh, we have uh, found conclusive evidence of such migrations having taken place. So they are playing safe by a factor of safety of 100%. Not only do they say that the Bronze Age migration took place with the Indo-Aryans coming in, they have one more migration, that is the Neolithic migration. So if one fails, you still have the other. So they say that, you know, something like 6000, 7000 BC, these people came in from the Fertile Crescent, which is Anatolia, which they have labeled the cradle of civilization, bringing agricultural technologies to the rest of the world. And that is how they enabled the rest of the world to live. What is demic? Demic means, I mean, you can have two ways of ideas propagating. One is, I just pass on the idea to my neighbor and slowly the idea just catches on, you know, in neighboring countries. And the other way is when whole people move to another place and they carry the idea themselves. So, like, it's not like the fertile crescent guy could have just taught the guy next to him, look, you can plant crops like this and then, you know, you can you can get by, you can you can get food security and then the guy teaches the guy next to him. Instead, what they're saying is the people themselves migrated into India 
and then effectively brought agriculture to the land where the natives did not have a conception of this sort of thing. So uh, the fundamental mistake that, that even very prominent geneticists make is genes by themselves are not a marker of language or culture. This is a point I try to make very often. I mean, and, and, and when you talk of ancient DNA, the only way to understand context is from archaeology. Because people may have used a very different language in the past. We do not know, unless you have any textual evidence which, which clearly mentions what language they were using. Or they may have used languages which, are, which became subsequently extinct. We have no trace of them and we do not even know that such a language exists. So genes by themselves will not identify language or culture the way the geneticists are trying to argue. This is a fundamental, in fact, it's, a, it's an undergraduate level mistake. It's a rookie mistake. And yet they seem to be very happy to make it. And I also try to make the point that, that genetic evidence actually is not incompatible with out of India demic diffusion scenarios. The, the evidence for, uh, for agriculture in the subcontinent, I mean, uh, the first thing is that rice, wheat, I mean, any cereals, there are ultimately types of grasses. So you need to have the proper climate and vegetation which supports grasslands as a prerequisite for agriculture to start. The thing is that in the subcontinent, you have evidence of grasses near human habitation, even as far north as the Gangetic Plain from almost 15,000 BC. The old assumption was that the Gangetic Plain was mostly thickets, forests. Until the Aryans came in around the second millennium BC, they cleared the forests and introduced agriculture. This is the old theory. But now, palynological evidence suggests that there were grasslands over there almost even in 15,000 BC. And the most astonishing fact, of course, is that uh, when this evidence comes in from the extreme south of the subcontinent, which is Sri Lanka, Horton Plains. Uh, in, in, in what is called the Fahin cave, they found very large amounts of, of phytoliths and minerals which come from fruits and, and wild cereals in very large amounts inside the human settlement. That means they were clearly gathering these, these products of the forest for food. And this goes back to almost 46,000 years ago. And that is because it is from around 46,000 years ago that you have evidence of human habitation in that particular region. It could be older. We do not know. It's just because we do not have evidence of human habitation that, that the date starts at 46,000. Again, I would like to point out this is not unique. In Southeast Asia, actually it goes back even for the 53,000 years ago in Papua New Guinea, the evidence that people were able to use resources from the rainforest. So they had a very important component of, of vegetables, fruits, and but not cereal. The distinguishing characteristic of, of South Asia is that we also have wild rice in the diet from around, from deep in the Pleistocene. And the, um, and in, in, in the Fertile Crescent, in fact, funnily enough, grasslands appear only around 13,000 BC, which is actually much, much later than in the, the subcontinent. And uh, the archaeological evidence is quite unequivocal on this point that nuts, plant, plant, plant products like nuts or wild cereals make their way into the diet of the people <coughs> only around 12,000 BC. I apologize for the mistake, a typographical error. It's not 12,000 years ago, but 12,000 BC. 
So the first evidence of these kind of plant products making it their way into the diet of people in the Fertile Crescent is only around 12,000 BC. And fire was used to clear forests for the first time to cultivate crops only around 10,000 BC, subsequent to 10,000 BC, that is well into the Holocene, well into the Holocene. Whereas in the subcontinent, it is deep in the Pleistocene, it is almost 15,500 BC. So why did this happen? I mean, the, the simple fact that many people miss is that the driving force for this transition to agriculture was climate. The south of the subcontinent, you know, you're talking of something like, you know, uh, 7 degrees north, 10 degrees north, not more than that. So that place was warm. So you could have the vegetation which supports a lifestyle which is based on plants and plant products. This was not possible further north and certainly not in the temperate region. In the Fertile Crescent, for instance, up to 13,000 BC, it was mostly temperate scrub. So there is no possibility of a plant-based lifestyle existing in that region around that time. So then what, what, what we have is that the archaeological evidence suggests that agriculture in the subcontinent is definitely indigenous, autochthonous. It is based upon resources available here. It is the plants and cereals which are grown here with deep Pleistocene roots. They are already familiar with these crops. They are already familiar with these plants. That is why around 16,500 BC, when the, the weather started turning slightly warmer and rainfall, I mean moisture, the, uh, there was greater moisture, there was an almost immediate transition to agriculture. The moment it was enabled, the local population almost makes an immediate transition to agriculture. This was not the case in the Fertile Crescent. So for, you know, when, when the next time somebody claims that Fertile Crescent is the, the cradle of agriculture, you can probably, you can probably give, give them this evidence. And again, uh, such an early transition to agriculture is also observed in Southeast Asia. Around 10,000 BC, I, I think you can already find evidence of people digging channels for uh, irrigation. And they were able to grow uh, tubers like taro and, and a variety of other uh, plant products for, for food. What is this uh, the, the period before the Holocene, something like uh, 12,000 years is called the Holocene, that is after the Ice Age, once the Ice Age ended. Before that, it's called the Pleistocene. So that corresponds to the, the, the time where most of the world was under large sheets of ice. So that, that at that time, the climate was not suitable for, for, a, uh, for an existence based on, on plant-based products, except in parts of India. But clearly the evidence can be the other way around. That is that migrations from the subcontinent may have helped establish agriculture in the Fertile Crescent. The reason being that in South India, for instance, in, in uh, Sri Lanka, the first crops that were grown, surprisingly, were barley and oats. These are winter crops that you cannot grow in that part of the world today because it's a bit too hot for that. And then from around 13,000 BC, you actually find that that they actually make a migration towards rice, a more warmer environment. And there is, from there, there is a continuous curve in the subcontinent. Now coming to the, the, uh, the archaeological record in the, uh, the, the Ganga plain, the Gangetic plain. Uh, I mean, it, they had a very diverse, very, very diverse crop record, as you can, as you can see from the, the, the uh, carbonized remains that have been uh, dug up by 
uh, Anil Pokhria and others. Uh, I, I always like to quote this uh, this verse from the, the the Chamakam. You may have, I don't know, you might have recited this. I mean, uh, so you can probably identify with Prihayaschame, Yavaschame, Vasaschame, Tilaschame, Muddhaschame, Khalvaschame, Godhumaschame, Vasuraschame, Priyangavaschame, Navaschame, Shamakaschame, Nivaraschame. So every single crop that is mentioned in that particular verse from the Krishna Yajurveda, the Taitriya Samhita, is actually recorded there. I mean, if, if you want, you can probably try to identify them. The first is rice, brihi. Then next is uh, barley, and then you have wheat, and then funnily enough, mudga. You have actually uh, moong dal, and then you also have lentils. You know, khalwa. And in fact, pretty much there, uh, for some strange reason, they actually happen to be arranged in the same sequence as well in this particular photograph. And then the, the out of India, I mean, I'll, I'll probably uh, skip this for, for the sake of uh, time. Uh, we'll come to the, the Bronze Age migrations from the steppe. Uh, the, the thing is that no ancient culture on the steppe has actually been identified as being Proto-Indo-European. There is no definite identification of that. So if somebody claims that migrations from there took Indo-European languages all over the sub, all over the world, that, fame, that, that claim is fundamentally flawed because there is no basis for such a, such a claim. The archaeological evidence from the subcontinent is quite unambiguous that there was no break in the local tradition of the subcontinent. It, it is a matter of, I think, uh, unceasing shame for us that, that American archaeologists like Kenoyer, I know Dilip Chakrabarty doesn't like him very much, but uh, archaeologist Kenoyer, uh, he blames an uncritical reading, reading of the Vedic texts for people who come up with these kind of invasion and migration scenarios. So, I mean, one of the the the, uh, the episodes that he refers to is uh, Vashishtha's suicide in the Adiparva of the Mahabharata. So, Vashishtha, when he was uh, aggrieved by the loss of his son, he wanted to commit suicide by drowning in the Saraswati. But the Saraswati wanted to save the Brahmarshi from the sin of suicide. So, what it does is that it splits into shallow streams and changes course, thereby ensuring that he doesn't drown and he's and he's saved. Now, the Satluj, which was one of the feeder streams of the Saraswati. If you actually notice the map, I don't know if you can access Google Maps. If you if you look at Ropad in Punjab, you will find that the Satraj actually makes an unnatural perpendicular 90 degree turn at that place. Until that point, it has been flowing in a mostly north-south direction. At Ropad in Punjab, it suddenly turns perpendicularly towards the west, where it changes course. You can actually see the paleo channels that it has abandoned while, while during that process of evolution. So that is now known to have happened around around. 12,000 to 8,000 years ago. So we can actually put a lower limit of 6,000 BC for some episodes in the Adiparva of the Mahabharata. And then the, the, the worst of it is the absurdity of positing migration of, of a Bronze Age population into a land that has moved well into the Iron Age. By around 1900 BC, we were already able to produce iron in very large quantities. It was very advanced grade of iron. You can see this from the paper by Professor Vibha Tripathi of uh, Banaras Hindu University. He has <coughs> marked all the sites on the Gangetic Plain where we have been able to find iron furnaces. And they all date to around 1900 to 1800 BC. So the, the problem is we are talking of the migration of a Bronze Age population into a land which has already moved into, into the Iron Age, which in itself is absurd. And the other, the other problem being that we do not have tin on the subcontinent at the time at which these Bronze Age people are supposed to have come in. 
So that, that lack of kin for a prolonged period on the subcontinent indicates a lack of contact. So it is the exact opposite. It indicates a lack of contact with the steppe because the steppe had tin mines. The local populations over there, they were able to exploit the tin, they were able to make bronzes. So how come we have a tin using population coming into the subcontinent but no trace of tin? And tin is very important because you are able to make copper easy to process. Nobody who has started using tin to make bronze will regress from there to, to using just copper. And the, the other problem, of course, is that uh, there, there are a lot of, uh, uh, of, uh, of uh, archaeological problems with identifying the, the Yamnia as uh, Proto-Indo-European. Uh, but I will just come to the, some of the genetic errors, the errors in the genetic studies that they, have, they, have, they may have made. Uh, South Asia had a large, very large and diverse population, almost 50% of the world's population around 25,000 years ago. And the diversity being so high, you cannot make claims of migrations into the subcontinent without actually having detailed samples of ancient DNA. And you cannot just sample modern populations and arrive at conclusions of, of uh, migration because it is entirely possible that Eurasia at one point of time was mostly peopled out of South Asia. So it is not surprising that there are genetic affinities between some South Asian populations and, and populations in other parts of Eurasia. So in the absence of detailed ancient DNA evidence from, from the subcontinent, it is, it is actually flawed to make such a claim. And the other problem, of course, I mean, for those who might be interested is that uh, since they do not have ancient DNA, in your admixture model, you have to substitute something as an assumption, you know, to represent the ancient Indian DNA to calculate where the migration must have taken place. So what they do is that they use this Andamanese population, the Onje. The problem with the Andamanese is that when they assume, I mean, because to support one fiction, you have to create another fiction. The fiction here being that the Andamanese are the first out of Africa migrant population who got isolated somehow on the islands and they have not mixed with anybody else subsequently. But there is plenty of literature, surprisingly, which says that they are not a South Asian population at all. They are a very, very complex Southeast Asian population with multiple ancestries and they are not by any means an isolated out of Africa relic because they actually reached Andamanese Islands only as recently as 25,000 years ago, possibly in fact within the last 15,000 years. So there is there is a, a problem with the proxy they have used. This is of course a very technical reason, it's just for those who might be interested. Uh, so what we can basically infer is that uh, Indo-European languages were probably already present in the in the, the, the region known in the greater sphere of cultural influence of India, which extends into Iran and also into the, the steppe by around 6,000 years ago. Because that corresponds exactly to the split in the, the mutually exclusive Asian and European subclades of the, the, the bi-chromosomal haplogroup R1A, as well as the, the, the split in the European and the steppe branches of the R1B. Both of them took place around 6,000 years ago and both in the vicinity of India. So what we have mm -hmm. is that the evidence suggests that we have a massive dispersal accompanied by a founder effect away from India, not into India. And that would also correspond, you know, to the, the, the founding of the Bronze Age cultures in, the, in both Europe as well as the steppe. Their starting days are something like 3000 BC, whereas this split in the, 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 the subclades is around 4000 BC, which also corresponds to the, the estimate that linguists have of when Proto-Indo-European must have split 
into the various branches to give rise to the to the the, the, the migrants into different regions. And then, I mean, uh, uh, cattle DNA because the the Aryans have been described as herders and pastoralists. So obviously, <laughs> cows were very important to them. Cows and livestock were very very important to them. There are two distinct breeds of cattle. <laughs> The taurine and the indesine. The indesine is what you find exclusively in India, and the taurine is what you find outside India. Surprisingly, in a in a study of of bovine populations in the subcontinent, there was absolutely no trace of taurine DNA, which is very very odd because if if people must have moved from the steppe, I mean the, the red color that you see is is indicative of taurine maternal DNA. And the, the 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 lighter colors, the cream and the lilac, they are indicative of uh, of of uh, indesign DNA. You find that there is virtually no red in India. It's almost like there is an unnatural barrier that that stops those cows from entering, you know, past the Indus or past the Himalayas. On the other hand, you do have migrations of empty, of cow empty DNA into into the into the steppe as well as the the Middle East, which actually is indicative of human migration out of the subcontinent by proxy. So, so those basically are the conclusions and the, the, that uh, the problem with genetic studies is that they completely disregard the archaeological evidence and they use a circular reasoning. They assume that the homeland of Proto-Indo-European is on the steppe, although there is no evidence to say so. And uh, they, they have made some methodological errors as well in, in arriving at their conclusions of, of uh, migrations both in the Neolithic as well as Bronze Age into the subcontinent. Indian agriculture is definitely indigenous and autochthonous. It uses resources here. Its establishment was driven by climate change, where it had an unbeatable advantage over the Fertile Crescent. And that there is complete continuity of the archaeological tradition starting from the Neolithic through the Bronze Age to the present time. Thank you. Thank you.